It's August 10th, 2016, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's science and technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. First off, we'll look ahead on the local tech calendar. We are going to start with Mike King from Design Hui, who's going to tell us about the screening of design disruptors. Then Dan Tausignant is going to join us by phone to tell us about an upcoming Agile 101 class. And finally, after the break, we'll get into an update of the recent exoplanet discoveries. Joining us are Nader Hagigipour and Evan Sunikoff, and both are astronomers over at the Institute for Astronomy. How are we discovering so many planets around so many stars, and how many of those planets could potentially sustain life? Of course, we always welcome your comments and questions. As part of that conversation, you can contact us by calling in or sending us a tweet after the break. Now, do do you want to talk a little bit about our little segment on uh, Hawaii News Now? Well, this morning on the Geek Beat, we covered updates to apps. Now, last week on this show, we did talk a lot about the Snapchat copy in Instagram called Instagram Stories, but we did not yet cover, for for example, Twitter expanding its memories sequence, and also uh, I think you wanted to talk a little bit more about Pokemon Go. Well, Pokemon Go was, uh, you know, <laughs> they, they had this thing called Tracker. The Tracker kind of disappeared, and people were disappointed because they couldn't tell where the Pokemon were. And then they have something called Nearby. It, it sort of indicated where Pokemon was, but you'd still have to walk around and look for it. Well, darn. Darn. What, what, what's then, with this game? And then, and then they move. improved it where you, they now call it Sightings, where it actually exists in, a, in this sort of uh, vicinity, and if it... If it uh, spawns or despawns, it disappears off your sighting. I'm and not sure then, if you're speaking English at this yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pardon me, but then and then and then they came up with another release saying that, oh, by the way, to a very limited audience, we've even uh, enhanced the sightings feature by putting your Pokemon. You can tell where Pokemon is relative to the Pokestop <laughs> on the map. On the map. So, you, know so where you, you, can you can actually go to the Pokestop and know what Pokemon are at that Pokestop. Well, you know, it's fascinating. When they took away the tracker, people revolted. They were very mad. But also what happened is a lot of crowdsourced efforts. So there's a couple of really big Pokemon Facebook groups just for Hawaii, for example, Pokemon Go High, for example. And they are building their own database of locations. So if you can't use these new features that are not available to everybody, you could join the group and look at this Basically, a crowdsourced spreadsheet saying, hey, if you go to Magic Island or if you go to Cook Street in Kaka'ako, these are the Pokemon you're going to find. And actually, I kind of love that sort of group effort to improve the game. I, I think so. I, and, you know, there are a lot of groups that are interested. I, I was uh, contacted by a uh, like a child uh, children's youth day who wanted to build a, a whole event around having all the kids go out and look for Pokemon. Sure, sure. So that could be very useful. And the other update we did talk a little bit about this morning was the expansion of Twitter Moments. Now, again, we did talk about uh, uh, Instagram adding a Snapchat feature called Stories, and I guess Twitter is basically saying, hey, hey, we have a storytelling feature too. It's called Moments. Right now it was only available to media organizations, and now they're expanding it to notable users, celebrities, but their intention, their stated intention is to make Moments available to everybody. And what moments are, are curated stories. So you might have photos, you might have videos, you might have tweets all about a single thing. Maybe you're at a political rally. Maybe you're at your friend's birthday party. Maybe you're watching a surfing competition. You can collect all of your tweets and put them in a slightly easier to follow stream rather than someone basically going to your Twitter profile and reading backwards. Right? So, so is this available 
now? I think it's about to be rolled it's, out. It's right? about to be rolled out to certain users, um, but their their of their stated intention is to make it available to everybody. And again, Twitter is struggling to pick up new users. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people find that giant fire hose of information a little too impenetrable. So if they could say, hey, Bert, why don't you make a uh, Twitter moment all about the Hawaii uh, code challenge coming up so we can read how it goes in a more clear narrative format rather than backwards, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's an attractive feature. Sounds good. So I'll be looking forward to Twitter moments along with all the new uh, enhancements to the social media platforms. Now we want to welcome Mike King, who's here. He's from Design Hui, which is also part of uh, EK. Well, well, I'll let Mike explain this. And, and he's here to talk a little bit about the uh, screening of something called Design Disruptors. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, how's it, guys? Good to see you, Mike. So first off, tell us, what is Design Hui? So Design Hui is a community organization that um, kind of grew out of Tech Hui. So mm-hmm. um, for some of you that might be familiar, Tech Hui was, a, Luke. Yeah, was yep. an organization started by Dan Luke, uh, the CEO of Akezo, to kind of uh, get all of the people in the tech community here all on the same page and uh, be able to showcase events and things that are going on online and be able to just kind of have a a consolidated place to share things with uh, techies in Hawaii. Mm We wanted to do the same thing for the design community. There are uh, other organizations that have been available, like AIGA, uh, but some of those you have to kind of pay for. You have to be part of school organizations to be a part of, or they might be just specific to a certain uh, industry in the design uh, world, like graphic design or um, architecture. Whereas Design Hui was really thought of as a uh, consolidated place for designers and artists of all types to be able to come together, collaborate, share ideas, and really just inspire each other. That's great. Yeah, yeah. So you are uh, trying to bring together sort of like this design community, and I noticed that there's a screening that's happening. And what is this design disruptors about? I mean, give us a little, give a little tease on what this movie is all about. Sure. So uh, a startup out of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area called Envision, um, they create a, a, a web prototyping software. They sponsored uh, a movie or uh, an independent design film over the last year that basically covers uh, a lot of different uh, companies in the, the kind of in groundbreaking industries that are really pushing the boundaries in, in terms of what how design has been able to kind of really take a hold of, of, of business and really push the industries forward. So when we look at uh, companies like Airbnb, Uber, uh, Medium, even companies like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, all of these companies are really revolutionizing uh, the products that we use today, and it's a lot of it's through how they're approaching design. And so what this documentary really does is it uh, kind of takes uh, a look at how these uh, new businesses are are being developed and, and how they're approaching design in, in different ways to really uh, kind of shake up the industry. Now, when you uh, you mentioned earlier, Design Hui is not as strict a membership organization as some other organizations. I was curious uh, how that works. Then, what what is the platform or way that people interact? If I am actually someday ever talented <laughs> enough to be a Design Hui member, what am I talking about? Am I talking about a forum, message board? Am I talking about a chat room or uh, a, a website, a Facebook group? What what is Design Hui? Design Hui is all of that. Okay. Everything you just said. Um, so we, we're not really trying to be any one thing. It's really a, a, a social entity that people can interact with on various forms. So we have a Slack group where mm. the, the majority of our conversation takes place today. But we also have um, a Facebook page. We have Twitter. Um, we have an Instagram. And we try to 
be as 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 involved in the community wherever they are. So when people are posting their or when designers are sharing their artwork on Instagram, for example, they hashtag it with Design Hui. We'll display it on our site and we'll share it in inside of the other social networks that we have, and vice versa. When people are communicating in Slack, they're sharing other um, ideas and work that they're doing. Just as just to inspire each other. It's not so much to just show off and say, hey, look what I can do, but hey, here are some other cool things that are just happening in the industry that, you know, I'd like for you guys to check out. So you have a virtual community, but now you're, you're, you have been doing real life uh, events. So that's, this, is this movie screening part of a series just because the opportunity or availability of the film came up? Actually, this is our first real oh, life. Okay. So it's our first IRL. So and you um, heard it here <laughs> on Bite Marks Cafe. You did exactly. <laughs> so well, there are other people IRL. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yes. Uh, so we're we're trying to do a little bit more, um, you know, in real life events. And so this is our first event that we're partnering with AIGA Honolulu to put on. We're actually bringing out one of the the people that's going to be in the film to help speak and kind of um, uh, talk about a little bit about how they uh, put together the film and mm-hmm. everything. So we hope to that. This is, you know, the start of something great. Well, you know, Mike, I I think you've uh, hit it on the head when you said how design is such an integral part of the technology that we all now are sort of taking for granted as part of our, you know, everyday life. And, And how we interface with the technology is really through user interface and through design and how it really appeals to us as sort of that human computer interface. Exactly. And it's it's a really critical thing and I, th- I think sometimes goes unappreciated. Oh, I, I completely agree. But I think while it's has gone unappreciated. I think it's something that is 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 making or breaking businesses today, mm-hmm. and they're starting to see that the time and effort that they put into design does actually pay out in the long run. So I think you know, as as uh, industries continue to be shaken up, I think you'll continue to see design to play a bigger and bigger role in that. So give us the details on where when this uh, the screening is taking place. So the screening is going to be taking place next Thursday, uh, August eighteenth. It's going to be at Kakaako Agora. So that's uh, across from where the old Fisher Hawaii used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a completely free event for the community. You just have to RSVP online. So you can do that uh, by going to <clears throat> uh, facebook.com forward slash design hui. We have a post up there where you'll be able to di- directly link in an RSVP from there. You can also go to the designdisruptors.com website. Um, that provides a little bit more details on what the movie's about and the different screenings that are that will be available across the U.S. And certainly after the screening, there'll be a conversation uh, uh, directed, I would imagine, conversation. And, and, For sure. and this is free? Oh, yes. Oh, Again, wow. it's a free event. That. So um, we we're, we have some food trucks that are coming out. So if you guys want to get your snack on, you can definitely do that as well. But uh, the, the event is completely free for, for anybody that wants to come. They oh. just have to RSVP. Very good. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. Yeah, not a problem. Thank you. Thank you. And of course, next up, we want to welcome uh, Dan Tosignant. Uh, he's on the phone calling from uh, Phoenix. He's part of the Oahu Agile Project Management Meetup, and they're doing something called Agile 101. So welcome to the show, Dan. Hi, Bert. How are you? Good. Uh, Aloha, Dan. I, I'd like you to perhaps All pronounce right. your last name just so that you know we could hear it clearly uh, <laughs> articulated. You did a very good job. It's Daniel Tusignan. Thank you. Tusignan. Very good. All okay. right. Well, of course, you're also known as Scrum Dan, right? That is true. That is my short name, Scrum Dan on Twitter. <laughs> very good. So, so Dan, tell us... Uh, Give us a little background on maybe what the Oahu Agile Project Management uh, sort of meetup group is all about. Okay. Um, well, I live in Kailua, 
and I started the meetup a couple years ago uh, when I moved to Oahu. Uh, I'm an Agile practitioner, um, focusing on Agile software development for about the last 15 years. And when I moved there, one of my intentions was to really um, work with the local community and introduce Agile. Um, Agile is still pretty new to the island, and Agile is all about really taking what we call traditional project management and waterfall project management to projects and finding ways really to deliver software faster Mm -hmm. uh, to customers, whether the customer is internal or external. So that methodology is pretty new to a lot of organizations, and so the meetup is really a free way for people to get training on Agile. So we started, I think our first meetup was in December 2014. Um, We walked through a full life cycle with some of our core attendees from how to start a project to how to create requirements and things like that. But we've got a lot of new members in the last um, year and a half. I think we're up to well over 100 members. So this next week on Wednesday at 5.30 at The Rock, uh, Real Office Centers in Honolulu, um, we're going to have a kind of restart. We're going to do Agile 101 again and really just talk about what is Agile for those people who don't know, talk about some myths and misconceptions, and spend a little bit of time on Scrum, which is really the most popular Agile framework. Well, um, I work at a real estate data company, and we implement some Agile practices, practices. but for people who aren't familiar with it, you, you said that it's relatively new. It kind of talks about delivering something faster versus waterfall. So some of this terminology might not be familiar to everybody, although I'm sure we have a lot of software developers in our audience. But uh, maybe in, in a way, if you could tie it also to a general project management philosophy, not just software, but you know how a team can get something done, what are some of the core principles of Agile project management? Um, So that's a great point. It's not just about software. When it first came out, it was, but now we talk more about any project that is focused on delivering value. So I was a project manager for many years before I got introduced to Agile, and we would build projects from the bottom up, meaning we'd build some foundation, whether it was building a house or building software or building a business process improvement, and we would just do whatever was easiest first and then work our way to the end. In Agile, it's all about this concept of delivering value as quick as possible. You may have heard of minimum viable product from the lean startup folks. A lot of our community in Honolulu that's doing startups is really familiar with that. But larger companies don't realize they can take advantage of that mm-hmm. as well. So it's identifying the smallest piece of valuable product in a project, getting that to a customer, whether it be internal, external, as fast as possible, and then building on that success and delivering more. The next piece of it that's kind of unique to organizations is really empowering the team members to have a lot of autonomy, giving them control over how they build the product, giving them control over how they organize, having very small teams that are focused on delivering value. So it's it's really cool. There's four values and 12 principles with the Agile Manifesto that really expand on it and if I told you at all, we'd actually right. have the Agile no problem. class now. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is kind of what I train on and what I teach on and coach on. And so the, the meetup is really an opportunity to get some exposure to this um, and see if you want to learn more and, you know, and begin to explore it for your organization or for your well, projects. What about a scrum? Yeah, I was going to ask that too. <laughs> well, what, what, can you describe what, it, what a scrum is? So if you're familiar, when I first heard the term scrum, I thought it was an acronym. I thought it was S.C.U.R.U.M. stood for something. Uh-huh. Um, but really, it's taken from rugby. 
And if you ever watch rugby, we have the Olympics on right now. If you haven't caught a rugby game, you can catch one on the Olympics. One of the ideas of rugby is the team works together to get the ball down the field in the opponent's goal. And a scrum is when the whole team is diving on the ball and working to get it down the field. So that concept is, is what was taken to apply to software development or to projects in general. Can the team work together as a unit? to bring the project to the finish line instead of doing a relay race approach of one person working on something, handing it to the next person, and handing it to the next person. So it's a very collaborative process to deliver the solution as opposed to a handoff. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a scrum is actually uh, describing a process. It's, it doesn't, it's not necessarily like, you know, like the morning meeting is, the, the, the morning meeting is not the scrum, right? The morning meeting is also called the scrum. The framework is called the scrum framework. And the morning meeting is called the daily scrum. Hmm. So it's a double use of the terminology there. Oh, got um, it. The okay. daily scrum is a once a day, the whole meeting, the whole team checks in and just talks about what they've accomplished since yesterday, what they're going to work on today, and is anything in the way. And it's a minimum meeting of 50, a maximum meeting of 15 minutes, and only the developers can talk. It's yeah, not they... a status meeting. It's <laughs> not a time to gripe or complain <laughs> or talk about what you had for dinner last night. It's a focused meeting. And that little change in project methodology really brings the team together. Yeah, in our company, they're called stand-ups because you're not allowed to sit down. Once you sit down, you're clearly going to have a much longer conversation. So. Exactly. Very good, exactly. very good. Now, this is very uh, this is very informative, and I think there's going to be a lot of people that are interested in this, your Agile 101, since you're going to be kind of rebooting it. And uh, can you give us the details again? Where, when is this all taking place? Sure. Um, to register, you've got to meet up. So, you know, if you're not a meetup member, become one. There's a lot of great meetup groups in Honolulu. Um, but it's going to be next Wednesday, August 17th at 5.30. And that's going to be at Real Office Centers, which is a real cool place if you haven't been there. It's a new shared space in Honolulu that took an old building, rehabbed it, and mm-hmm. there's some new restaurants on the first floor. And that's on 2 North Hotel Street, right in downtown Chinatown, right in the center of Chinatown. Very good. So I've, I've got the link to the meetup. I'll put that up on the show notes later on tonight. So that's next week, Wednesday the 17th, correct? Correct, over at the Real Office Center. Well, thanks, uh, Dan, for joining us, Scrum Dan. All right, mahalo. All right, see you on Twitter. Very good. Okay, so we'll take a short break. And, of course, when we return, we'll be joined by Nader Higigipour and Evan Sinikoff. Both talking about uncovering new planets outside of our solar system. Exoplanets are being discovered at a fantastic rate. What's the science behind scanning distant stars and what does a universe full of planets mean for us on Earth? Of course, we'd love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or reach us toll-free from the neighbor islands or perhaps an exoplanet at 877-941-3689. And, of course, we'll be monitoring Twitter, so you can tweet us your questions at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. Down in flames. Almost every sports fan has had a moment where you're like, I cannot believe my own emotions right now. The next thing I know, I'm being hugged by this woman, just slinging me left and right, left and right. On the bottom of a pile, I couldn't breathe. It was like, oh my God. What is it about a game that makes it more than a game? We wonder on the next Radio Lab. Saturday morning at 10. On the next On Being, philosopher of ecology Joanna Macy's path wound from the CIA to Tibetan Buddhism to the poetry of Rainer Maria Rilke. I had to be with Rilke. 
And what a reward. It was as if I were being dipped in beauty. Poetry and wisdom for the dramas of our time. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Whole Foods Market Hawaii, Ulupono Initiative, and Hawaii Pacific University. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Nader Hagigipor and Evan Sinokoff. Uh, Nader is an astronomer over at the Institute for Astronomy with research interests in formation, detection, and the evolution of extrasolar planets. Evan, meanwhile, is a graduate research assistant working on his Ph.D. That topic is masses and properties of sub-Neptune-sized planets. Just the stuff that we're most interested in. Gripping reading. Yes. And what can we say about the makeup of these new planets? We'd love to hear your questions and comments. That number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu. And 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. We want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Nader, let's, let's start with you. And, you know, we've, uh, you know, we've talked about exoplanets. We even contemplated changing the name of our show to Exoplanet Palooza. Uh, but, you know, kind of give us a little, little uh, primer on how you go about detecting these planets in solar systems Far, far, far away. Well, the first thing you have to consider is that we don't see these planets. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, the detection is indirect. And uh, the way that we do it is uh, by studying the evolution or uh, the way that the star that hosts these planets uh, behave. Uh, sometimes we study the motion of the stars, and that motion has this effect in the light that comes towards us. And we study the property of the light that comes towards us. And then from there, we detect, uh, we determine whether there is a planet around the star or not. And sometimes we look at the intensity of the light that comes towards us. And if that intensity varies, uh, then we determine whether there is a planet around or not. So Mm -hmm. uh, it is basically a study of the star and uh, uh, understanding and modeling whether there is a planet around the star or not. So is it that there have yet to be directly imaged or photographed? exoplanets at this point it is still a matter of we know it's passing in front of a star so we know there's one there well there are a few planets that have been detected but those planets are much much bigger than the ones that we are Mm. used to they are about several times uh, or maybe um, 15 times 13 times bigger than Jupiter Mm -hmm. and uh, so aside from those few planets that have been detected around very large stars uh, the answer to your question is yes we still have to wait for uh, better imaging techniques and the larger telescopes to be able to detect planets similar to our solar system now Evan you know I know that when you're using a space telescope like Kepler and we're going to talk a little bit about that and it's in space monitoring a star's brightness (coughs) makes reasonable amount of sense but when you're on Earth and I know four UH uh, telescopes uh, or Hawaii telescopes played a part in this this discovery this recent discovery of over a hundred exoplanets um if they're on the ground, I look up at the stars and I'm seeing them blink all the time. So I'm probably not seeing exoplanets. I'm seeing clouds. I'm seeing the atmosphere and and It's called twinkle. That's the twinkle. So how do you differentiate from a telescope when you're looking at a star that's twinkling or one that has an exoplanet moving around? Um, Well, we see very characteristic signatures of what the brightness of a star looks like, how it varies when, in this case, when a a planet passes in front of the star block some of the starlight, um, causing the star to appear momentarily dimmer. Um, and so what happens when there's a planet is every time the planet 
completes another orbit, comes back around, blocks the star again, you see another dip. And so by looking at these sort of regular, regularly spaced dips in the brightness of the star, that's a clear signature that there's probably a planet there. Is there a way to filter out the, the twinkling, the, the, heat, the heat waves from Earth? Um, yeah, they're, they're sort of more random and variable, and so it's, it's pretty easy to pick out these uh, regular dips in brightness. Yes. Um, they're over different time scales, so uh, a planet will take several hours to pass in front of its star where uh, sort of the random noise, the mm-hmm. twinkling you're seeing, is on a much you know, few second, millisecond time scale. So, you know, uh, we mentioned Kepler, and, and because of Kepler and the, its survey of the stars, uh, there is an increasing, I guess, discovery of exoplanets. I mean, tell us, uh, over the course of the last several years, there have been a regular sort of release of new exoplanets being discovered. What is it about the Kepler survey and the, and the study that's being done on the information coming from Kepler that's contributing to so many more exoplanets being discovered. The biggest um, advantage of using Kepler was that there is a space, so it uh, um, overcomes all those problems with atmosphere. And mm-hmm, all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the space, uh, it looked at one region of the sky uh, for three and a half, four years, and that gave us a uh, tremendous amount of data to study that region of the sky very well. And uh, so through that and through uh, and because of um, the high uh, photometry and s- sensitivity of Kepler uh, is capable of detecting very, very tiny uh, changes in the intensity of light of the star, we were able to uh, identify several thousand candidates. And then through vetting process, we were able to identify 4,000 of them. Now, um, when you think of these 4,000 ones, uh, every single of them is very important to understand how they form and evolve and everything. But they wouldn't, when they put them together and you study them statistically, that gives you a general picture of how planets form, how they interact with one another, how they settle in different orbits. And that is what's important about these discoveries. Mm-hmm. Now, Evan, one of the things that I'd read about Kepler was that uh, although it's a fantastic instrument and it had been launched, I think, uh, some time ago, I forget, 2009 or something 2009, like that, yes. that uh, it actually had a bad day in space, like in 2013, and things didn't look good for it. Like, yeah. So, all, you know, all good things must come to an end. But uh, <laughs> fortunately, so, so what happened was, as you said, the Kepler telescope uh, started its mission in 2009, found a wealth of exoplanets all in one patch of sky that it searched very deeply and was very sensitive to small planets, potentially Earth-like planets. Um, but uh, it had a major malfunction in 2013 where it lost its ability to point stably at one patch of sky, and it was sort of off balance. And engineers from NASA brilliantly devised a plan to stabilize the telescope using the pressure of sunlight on the spacecraft's solar panels. But they realized the only way they could do this is if they pointed the telescope um, uh, along a certain arc of the sky, which is n- now where this new um, repurposed uh, mission, this K2 mission, uh, is pointing. It's pointing at five different patches along the sky, the same arc of the sky that the planets in our solar system pass overhead, um, and it's able to search for planets there. So are you, uh, so is, is, is the, uh, uh, I guess, the productivity of this new patch of sky similar to what it was pointing to prior? So... One benefit of having five different patches of sky is that we have 
more bright stars. If you look at any one particular patch of sky, there's only so many bright stars or nearby stars to look at. And it's great that when we can study nearby stars, uh, we can study, actually study them in more detail. There's more light coming from them. We can study the planets that they host in much more detail. Um, and so one of the great things about the K2 mission is it's staring at many different patches of sky. We have lots of bright stars. Um, it's sensitive to planets um, that are orbiting very close to their host stars mm -hmm. because it only searches each patch of sky for about three months, whereas the Kepler mission was searching for several years. And you can only detect planets that pass in front of their star multiple times in that sort of mm. observing window. And so only the Kepler mission was sensitive to planets with that go around their star every year, for example. And the K2 mission is sensitive to planets that go around in less than a few months. Well, I have a, I have a, a silly question because that's my specialty. So, <laughs> Nader, if, if it's pointing along the ecliptic, it's pointing along the same path that our planets are on, that's great. But does that mean periodically a planet gets in the way? And if so, does the Kepler, can Kepler do anything with a giant planet in our solar system in its path? Um, no, actually. So <laughs> what happens is that, that the patches of the sky have been chosen in a way to avoid that oh, okay. and uh, to maximize the, uh, maximize the science return, however, to make sure that, that nothing gets uh, in front of the, the um, on the way of the telescope. Uh, so, no, that has been worked out very well. Yeah. If, if so, I can yeah, sure. jump yeah. in here, we actually had one patch of sky where we had Mars pass right in the way of the Kepler telescope, and you could see in our data this huge spike in brightness <laughs> that we essentially had to just crop out, uh, and, and you had a short window of, of bad data. Um, and I think the next field that the K2 is going to observe, uh, I think it's either Uranus or Neptune is going to pass in the way. So, so I think the answer is yes, the, the solar system planets <laughs> can get in the way for very short periods of time. But you said data, so actually it's not, it wasn't clear to me. Is Kepler it's not taking pictures, then it's a different way it, of collecting data? It's uh, taking a series of images. And so if you imagine taking a snapshot of tens of thousands of stars at, all at the same time, and through a series of snapshots, you're measuring the brightness of all these stars over time and looking for these dimmings that occur when a planet passes in front. And so this brightness measurement is sort of our data product mm -hmm. that we're looking at. So I, I'm kind of curious from a, from a time scale standpoint, when you do a, a survey and you are collecting this data, how much time goes by between the survey and you potentially discovering, you know, a star with an exoplanet revolving around it? I mean, what's the, what's the time scale there? Um, so it can, from the time where you actually uh, kept the Kepler spacecraft is taking the observations to the time when we can confirm a planet um, is typically, in the shortest cases, several months. Mm. Um, the longest cases, it can be years. Um, for the, the K2 mission, it stares for three months at each patch of sky. The telescope then uh, beams back all the data at once, and then it's up to the astronomers to take over from there, look at the data, look for these planet signals, um, you know, we have very sophisticated search algorithms we use. We can run and look at uh, all the stars in less than a day. Um, and then we identify candidate signals that might be planets. So your, the algorithm that you have helps you to identify a star and then look at its fluctuation over a period of time. So that's all done by 
a, a set of algorithms that you already have pre-programmed. Yeah, we could do it, you know, by eye, but <laughs> we have, you know, tens of thousands of stars to look through. It would take a long time. So, um, not when one of the things you can get, I would imagine, with these images is that is whether there's a planet. But the things that uh, are important are probably one, and what you're determining with this period of passing in front is its uh, distance from mm-hmm. its star mm-hmm. and potentially its size. Well. So um, what have been the primary takeaways of these uh, first wonderful batches of data coming out of Kepler? Because I know that when Fight Marks Cafe was early in its exoplanet Palooza days, mm-hmm. we were talking about planets that were the size of Jupiter and orbiting so close to their sun that, you know, certainly anything that would be life would have been incinerated instantly. But it sounds like now we're reaching that level of data resolution where we can see smaller planets further away from their stars. So what are we seeing in terms of trends? So one of the advantage of using uh, Kepler and one of the biggest discoveries that it made is that uh, most of these, it has discovered um, a tremendous number of planets in the sizes about um, uh, if you size of Earth and uh, slightly smaller than Neptune uh, called Super Earth. Um, so th- one of the discoveries of uh, one of the um, significant discoveries of Kepler is that uh, is um, identified that uh, most of the planets uh, or uh, in other words uh, the uh, most um, efficient product of planet formation is uh, the Super Earth objects. Uh, the advantage of this having the super Earth object is that if they are only slightly bigger than Earth, then they could be, and if they are in the right place, of course, they could be potentially habitable. If they are uh, smaller than Neptune, then they introduce a new class of uh, bodies to the to the, the game, uh, and uh, that that brings uh, a lot of questions about the formation of these objects and. Uh, and basically uh, uh, confronts theory with new questions. Now, I, I know that the similarities perhaps to our own solar system are very uh, attractive and, and interesting, and I want to talk a little bit about that as well. But have you seen uh, things you didn't expect? I remember perhaps about a year ago they were talking about a Tatooine system, for example, where you could perhaps have a planet with two stars. And Oh, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I do uh, as part of my involvement with Kepler is that um, – um, I run this uh, working group. Uh, it's called uh, Circumbinary Planet Working Group. And um, uh, so what we do is that we uh, look at the binary stars, uh, systems of uh, two stars that go around each other, and then we look for all those changes in intensity of the lights of those stars and determine whether those in, uh, variations intensity due to a planet like Tatooine that mm-hmm. goes around both the stars. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, so, um, yes, we have discovered about the 10 of those planets oh. and uh, that we something that we don't see our solar system. These are planets <laughs> that have two suns. And uh, what is interesting is that majority of them are Saturn or Jupiter size and about 30 percent of them are in the habitable zone of their system. So are they doing a figure eight? Or? No, uh. those, those, those <laughs> fancy figures, those are all mathematical. <laughs> and uh, in reality, they are unstable. No, these are just going on circles around both stars. Yeah. So I was going to just ask you that about, you know, you talk about this, this habit zone. Is that something sometimes referred to as the Goldilocks zone? Correct. And would that zone be different depending on the size of the star? Absolutely. So depending on the size, the spectral type of the star, the surface temperature of the star, the place where uh, a rocky planet similar to Earth can maintain liquid water on its surface will vary. Uh, for cooler stars, it's definitely closer. For a bigger and um, more um, luminous stars, it's farther out. Uh, to calculate that for binary stars is a different, uh, you know, story. So, uh, yes, uh, it varies depending on what type of star you're using. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, one of the one of the um, things that were, I think, uh, 
being discovered or was hoped to be discovered was perhaps water in the atmosphere of any of these exoplanets. Has that been achieved? Um, in, in a few of them. Um, did you want to comment on that? So far, we've yeah. detected water um, in planets as small as Neptune, um, but it's going to take the next generation of telescopes to uh, detect water in planets as small as Earth or even these super-Earths that we've been talking about. Wait, wait, wait. So you said you could you actually have detected it the size of Neptune? Yeah. Okay, okay. Large, large. Larger planets, yeah. they have sort of puffier atmospheres, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so we get a stronger signal. So what, what we're actually looking for um, in how we make these detections of different molecules in the atmospheres of planets is if you imagine the planet passing in front of the star – some of the starlight on its way to our telescopes passes through the atmosphere mm-hmm. of that exoplanet. And that atmosphere has an effect on the light. It actually blocks out different colors of light. Mm-hmm. And depending on the different colors that we see are absorbed by the planet's atmosphere, well, that's dependent on what, mole- what molecules actually make up the atmosphere. And each chemical has its own sort of fingerprint and how it interacts with light and we ca- can see that fingerprint. No, that's that's a great explanation because you know I and I am impressed by the precision that you are able to achieve by looking at this spectrum. Sp- <laughs> spec <laughs> that is in front of is, is in front of a star that is so far away that you can still get some uh you know differentiation with that you know that little bit of light coming out of that that little spot. Well, what are some of the it's, other I, I guess, molecules that you've identified? Have you found uh, planets with different kinds of atmosphere, atmospheres? Yeah, we've found, uh, we've had a number of detections of the gas methane. Um, methane is interesting because uh, we think that in order to have a consistent uh, source and amount of methane, uh, you need potentially some sort of biological processes going on. Um, so, for example, there's a moon... Um, it, Titan in our solar system that uh, has a lot of methane, and we think there could be maybe microbial life that's producing this methane, and so we want to send a probe to Titan, and now we see methane and you know throughout the universe and planets, and so those are just as interesting to study. Is it primarily atmospheres, or are you reaching the point where you can see these uh, signatures from what the planet itself uh, is made of? No, so we huh. uh, are looking at atmosphere specifically when we detect individual molecules. We Mm -hmm. can actually measure the density of the planet and get a sense of whether it's dense, um, you know, and and if its density is consistent with rock, a rocky planet like Earth, or maybe a gassier planet like Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And so we have ways of measuring the density of of the planet and distinguishing its sort of bulk composition. Now, you hinted at something that I I think we want to explore, this idea of alien life that might exist <laughs> on some of these exoplanets. But we want to hold that thought. We wanna, uh, we'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both Nader Hagipour and Evan Sinokoff about exoplanets. Of course, we'd love to hear from you, too. You can call 941-3689 or reach us from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. The rest of the country is focused on the general election. In Hawaii, it's all about our primary. UH Public Policy Center Director Colin Moore and HPR Contributing Editor Neil Milner take a look at the state's key races, and we want to hear from you. 
What contests are you keenly watching on your island? Let us know Thursday at 5 on Town Square. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Ganga Ji, author of Hidden Treasure. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about uncovering the truth in your life story. Sunday morning at 11. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Nader Hagigipur and Evan Sinikoff about newly discovered exoplanets. And, of course, if you have a comment or question, feel free to give us a call, 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 is the number to call from the neighbor islands. And, of course, we want to welcome Jess from Makiki to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hi there. How are you doing? Good, Uh good. Yeah, I just wanted to say hi to Evan. Uh, Evan, this is Jeff. I'm the UH videographer that did the, the story on you and uh, and, and Andrew Howard. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, good to hear from me again, Jeff. Hey, you guys did a great job. And I just want to let your your, your listeners know that if they want to see a, a visual representation of this story, they're welcome to drop by at hawaii.edu slash news. And you can see a little report that we did on uh, Evan and Andrew Howard. And their discovery. I think uh, we did a pretty accurate uh, story about the, the uh, their discoveries. That's so, do excellent. you um, do you remember what date that was? I can definitely put that up on the show notes later on tonight. Um, it was um, Evan. I think it was maybe three weeks ago. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. Yeah, you you can find the story at hawaii.edu/news, or or if you go to the UH News uh, YouTube channel, it's it's featured there. And I have to say, um, it's it's one of the quickest. Um, uh, rising videos we've ever done. I mean, I've I've only been at UH for about seven or eight months now, and that story shot to something like nearly six thousand views in in about two weeks. So, so do you think it was the videographer or the astronomer that you were uh, interviewing? <laughs> Pardon me. Was it the uh, videographer or was it the astronomer? Oh, actually, I'm the videographer. Evan's the astronomer. No, no, that's what I'm saying. What contributed to the meteoric rise of the views? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> that's agree to call it equal. We've been doing quite a few stories with a, with a, a science and or a IFA connection, and we, there's been really a lot of interest. The story, those stories go... Well, I'll tell you, go, I'll tell you exoplanets are ev- in everybody's hot. mind. I tell you, it's right. And, and Je- I mean, just want to thank you for uh, giving us a call. Yeah, thanks for letting us know. Sure. Good, great show. Thank you so much. Thank now, you. now you know we. I think the one of the reasons why uh, you know exoplanets are so interesting is not only you know the fact that we're now discovering water, we're discovering Earth-like planets, we're we're discovering the potential for alien life that might exist. I mean, what is your take on the opportunity here to perhaps even uncover something that might be life form outside of our solar system? You see, there is um, the fact of the matter is that there's nothing unique about our solar system. There's nothing unique about our Earth. And the mere fact that we have been able to discover all these extrasolar planets uh, is indication, is evidence that uh, we are not unique. Uh, in that respect, uh, having planets uh, that 
have similar characteristics as our Earth uh, is also quite common. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we shouldn't um, uh, think that the, our, our Earth is the only planet that has these characteristics. Uh, so we have discovered um, uh, super-Earth and planets similar uh, size and mass to Earth uh, in habitable zone. And uh, um, uh, so that all brings the, the, the broad, puts, puts us in a broader context that, uh, yeah, the, our uh, Earth is not unique and also uh, there are similar planets that are out there. Whether those planets have similar or hosting similar type of life as Earth, we still don't know. Mm. We don't have the means to detect that. Uh, so what we can say is that uh, we, uh, we have discovered planets of same size and mass uh, in right uh, place. And those planets, uh, if they have the right ingredients, uh, they may be able to um, start life. And also, so even if they start light, uh, life, um, whether it will, that life will go through the same path as our life did and ends up where we are, we don't know. Mm. We don't know the origin of our life. And what we know is that regardless of what its origin was, it has gone through a variety of bifurcations and paths. Mm-hmm. And many of those bifurcations ceased. And the one that we have is the one that stayed. So whether that will happen in similar uh, Earth analogs somewhere else another, around another star, um, we really don't know. It seems that, you know, if you find enough, then mathematically you start to go, it's almost hard to argue that there wouldn't be. But uh, specifically now, I know, Evan, you were part of a study um, from last month that talked about discovering 104 exoplanets, a specific set of exoplanets. And I think more recently than that, there was a separate study specifically focused on the number of uh, identifying uh, basically a hard identification of planets that are in that Goldilocks Correct. zone. Right. That was your study. That's, that, that was my study, yes. Uh, the, so what we did was that we look um, at all 4,000-plus uh, planets and, uh, and planetary candidates that Kepler has identified, and uh, we study each one of them. We separate them based on their size and based on locations, and we identify 400 of them that are in that Goldilocks uh, region. And then, I, and then we separate them based on their um, masses, their sizes, and their... Um, um, and the other characteristic that we had, and uh, we were able to identify uh, 20 of them uh, with uh, sizes similar to Earth or maybe slightly bigger right in the habitable zone. Uh, so those 20 give you good statistics uh, out of, say, 4,000 and uh, that where we stand. And uh, those 20 are um, hardcore planets. So those are the ones that are right where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, now, now, this is the identification of a set of planets at the right distance. But then, like I said, whether they really have life on them or not, or what type of life they have, we don't know. So, so from uh, from an astronomer standpoint, from a scientist standpoint, where are you now taking your next level of of let's say discovery? Are you going to try to drill deeper into? understanding those 20 planets, and how will you go about doing that? Right. So the next step, as Evan mentioned, the next step would be to understand the um, characteristics of the atmosphere and their density. So we need to know of their density so we can compare that with density of Earth and uh, to see if those planets are actually rocky. Mm-hmm. And we need to have uh, a good understanding of uh, the chemical composition of the atmospheres, which can only be done through understanding the, of the light that goes through the atmosphere mm-hmm. and come to us, as, as Evan mentioned. And uh, that, that way we can determine whether they have the right chemical composition as well. A really quick question from a shy caller. Uh, Evan, how far are we talking about here? Are these in our galaxy? Are we, are, just, are we looking at other galaxies? So not only are these in our galaxy, but they're sort of in our neighborhood within the galaxy. These are stars that are tens to hundreds of light years away. So sort of on a cosmic scale, they're right in our backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so 
their proximity to Earth allows us to study them in, in greater detail. I do want to talk a little bit more, perhaps although it's moving closer to science fiction, about this possibility for extraterrestrial life. Now, uh, does the fact that Kepler is looking along the ecliptic have uh, any particular bearing on if there was another planet with another happy bunch of humans sending satellites into space and peering off into the distance? I mean, are, are we in trouble because we've limited our view to this one plane? Well, our our view um, and the fact that we're looking along this one plane is uh, brings about one of the most interesting facts I find about this mission is that we're looking along just the right slice of the sky that if you were an alien living on one of these other planets that we've detected and you looked back at our solar system, your viewing angle is just right so that you would see the planets in the solar system passing in front of the sun. And so we're essentially finding planets on which alien life would be most likely to detect us. So, you know, maybe it wouldn't be surprising if there was a radio broadcast going on on one of these other planets <laughs> talking about a planet called Earth. Called Exo- Exoplanet Palooza. That would be the name of the show in that alternative universe. Now, in terms of the scans that you're getting from uh, Kepler and the, you know, the ability to go and look at let's say, more refinement in terms of the signal and determining, you know, what's coming from the atmosphere of, of some of these exoplanets. Uh, are you getting all that information from the already scanned uh, or already, the, the, you know, the data that you're already getting from Kepler or do you have to do another sort of scan? No, so Kepler gives us, the only information Kepler gives us is it allows us to detect the planet and based on how much dimming of the star there is, we can tell how big the planet is. We can tell uh, its temperature, how far away it is from the star. But in order to actually study the atmospheres of these planets and also probe the densities of these planets, it requires follow-up with other telescopes, okay, many of okay. which are on Mauna Kea. Uh-huh. We use four different telescopes from Mauna Kea to more precisely characterize these systems. Um, and you know, in the future, the next generation of telescopes um, are ones where we can actually probe the atmospheres of these small Earth-sized planets. Got it. I mean, so so the idea is that you can identify which has the highest potential for some of these Earth-like planets and then maybe focus in on that specific one using a telescope with some, some really uh, specific characteristics. That's exactly the purpose of doing that. So, um, again, uh, we uh, about three years ago, we set up uh, a working group. We called it the uh, Kepler Habitable Zone Working Group. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of that working group was exactly this, to identify those uh, small number of planets that are worth following up and they would give us uh, the best uh, price, uh, the best benefit for our, for our, um, for our buck. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so these 20 that we have identified are exactly like that. Uh, they, they have the right size, they are in the right place, uh, but they need follow-up with big telescopes in order to understand, uh, to get a better handle on their masses and their, their internal densities and the uh, chemical composition of the atmospheres. Now, uh, before the show, Bert was talking about a, a headline that had been going around recently about Kepler possibly being able to settle a long-standing debate over a mysterious observation for an exoplanet that has something large and undescribable passing in front of it. It's, it's, it's not just a tiny little planet like a little blink. It's something else, uh, like a, a megastructure. Well, so there's this thing called the, the Tabby Star, right? And, and it's not really uh, – well, when, when Kepler has identified all these 
stars that are are um, let's say their light intensity is is being changed by the potential of a planet passing in front of it. Uh, this Tabby star evidently has some other interesting characteristics, and it sort of defies the the you know the maybe the traditional solution of of a planet passing in front of it. I mean, what are some of the curious things about what is being seen in front of Tabby? So what we're seeing with this so-called Tabby star is this variation in the amount of light that's being blocked by the star that's, well, it's for a start, it's inconsistent with a planet because when a planet blo- uh, passes in front of its star, you expect that on each orbit, every time it passes in front, it should block the same amount of light. What we're seeing with Tabby star is a variation in how much light is blocked that's sort of fluctuating uh, over time. And so you see dips that are, you know, twice as deep as other dips. And it's a bit of a mystery in, in terms of what object or what objects are causing those. Is it so a that's, regular? That's, that's no moon then. Is it a space station? Uh, I, I think, uh, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, as Carl Sagan once said. And I think, you know, uh, at this point, we have tested a few different hypotheses. Is it maybe a family of comets that's passing in front of the star? Um, it seems like we can exclude all the hypotheses we've tested. That's not to say there's not another one we haven't dreamed up yet. Um, you know, that's that turns out to be the truth. To go the extra step and say, oh, this must be aliens, I would caution anyone from doing that at, at this point. We still have a lot to learn about this So is the, uh, is the fluctuations that you're observing a, a regular thing? Like it, it happens on a periodic basis? Yeah, there's, uh, from what I know, um, there's, they're more or less sporadic. Um, I don't know if there's any sort of uh, regularity. Um, I don't know if Nader can comment, but that's my understanding. <laughs> yeah, Nader's kind of shaking his head. I mean, you know, that there was an article about it being potentially this mega structure that's around well, this star. But. Well, um, a few years ago, I refereed an article on a mega structure around um, Earth. So the, the author suggested that as our sun gets old and uh, uh, the habitable zone where we are at is going to change, is going to move away, uh, we can actually move Earth with it by putting a huge uh, mirror in front of Earth uh, to reflect the light of the sun, and that changes the momentum of the system, and uh, and Earth goes back. So um, so you can imagine that I didn't accept the paper for public <laughs> But it was probably really, <laughs> but, really fun to read. But it was, it was, it was fun to read. Uh, so right. that, type of, that type of ideas exist, mm-hmm. and, uh, and if... Uh, uh, hypothetically, if you just want to visualize something like that, yeah, if something like that existed out there and you look at it, then there is a possibility for that megastructure to cause variation of the, the light of the star. Now, one thing that we've learned uh, in our ongoing coverage of astronomy, in addition to the fact that there's excellent astronomy happening here in Hawaii with some incredibly talented people, is that uh, things that are coming up are very carefully embargoed and stuff. So I am making sure that I know absolutely nothing but if somebody, I mean, what is the next step after you've done this study, for example, Nader, of finding these 20 exoplanets? Is the, what, what would you say is the next threshold you would meet or want to meet in your studies or in the study of astronomy here uh, that we should be looking for? We are, um, our group, our two working groups, um, the circumbinary and habitable zone working groups, are actually preparing for the next big mission, uh, TESS uh, Space Telescope. And that we are in the mode of transition from uh, uh, using all that we learned from Kepler and finishing up with Kepler to apply all that to tests and continue to that. 
So uh, my answer to your question would be uh, we are we are still processing that uh, Kepler data, but within a couple of years or so, uh, we'll have this conversation about discoveries with TESS. So TESS, uh, that's a, is that an acronym, or how do you spell that? Uh, transit, uh, help me. It's, it's the Transiting <laughs> Exoplanet Satell- Survey Satellite. Survey Satellite, survey yes. Satellite. Okay, yeah. so that's, uh, when is that going to be uh, launched? At, at the moment, it's been uh, scheduled to launch on that December 2017, but that is not certain yet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Evan, how about you? Uh, what's your what would you like to accomplish next? What would your next uh, great discovery be? So I'm really curious to know more about these super Earths, these planets that are just a little bit bigger than Earth, of which there are no analogs in our own solar system. Um, if I could just sort of step back for a moment, um, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't know of a single planet around another star. And all of a sudden, we know of thousands. And so, you know, we commonly think of alien life as existing on a planet that looks exactly like Earth. But now we have these super-Earths to consider. And that sort of opens up this door where, you know, we have a lot to explore in terms of the diversity of planets out there. Planet discovery is, is um, you know, growing exponentially, but still in its infancy. And so I think we still have a long way to go in probing the full diversity of planets out there. And so to understand this new class of planets, these super-Earths, understand what they're made of, that's a big question in my mind. Mm-hmm. And when you when you classify it as a super-Earth, uh, uh, I guess we don't, we're kind of running out of time here. We can probably save that for another conversation. But where can we find out more information about all these exoplanet discoveries that you guys are uh, doing right now? All these discoveries are in press releases that you can find that, that in the at the homepage of the Institute for Astronomy. It is called um, it, the, the URL address is uh, ifa.hawaii.edu. Okay. And uh, Evan has. I, yeah. I would also like to point out that if uh, we're looking for citizen scientists out there, if you're looking to actually get involved in the planet hunt, I would direct you to a website, planethunters.org, where we actually post the same data from the Kepler telescope that astronomers are looking at. And you guys can actually participate in looking for these dimming events that are caused by a planet passing in front of the star. And there's been over 100 planets found already by our citizen scientists. Well, That's very awesome. good. Well, Nader Hagigipour is an astronomer, and Evan Sinikoff is a graduate student or graduate research assistant, both at the Institute for Astronomy. We want to thank you both for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when Bert will talk about Venomous, how Earth's deadliest creatures mastered biochemistry. Yeah, you're going to abandon me. Well, well, (laughs) if you missed any part of this edition, you can find a podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, feel free to email us at BiteMarks at BiteMarks, at BiteMarks.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's an oldie but goodie. It's Everything But the Girl and a song called These Early Days. We'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.